Here we go! of a scene of unbridled debauchery. <laughs> Disgusting in this day and age of civilized man. Will you please get that boar's head out here, please? <laughs> Terrible. They're bringing in grapes. They got Nubian handmaidens. By the way, have you wondered who this is? <laughs> That's our symbolic listener figure. <laughs> and friends, if the shoe fits. Looks kind of familiar, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. Uh, for, for those of you who have other problems, this is a mother figure. Because right here in the limelight, many of America's great playwrights got their early training. And uh, as you know, most plays are anti-mother today. In fact, uh, about every five minutes, a kid will come in down over past the bar and he takes one look up here. It's kind of dark here, you see. He takes one look down and he says... How did she know I was here? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you never know when you're going to see your enemy. As a matter of fact, you know, today I'm, I'm, I'm watching TV, see? And they've got this scene. Did you see the All-Star game on TV? Oh, yeah. Here they are, see? They, it's the 25th anniversary of this fantastic ball game. This ball team, the, the 1941 New York Yankees. And there they all are. They're all standing out there with their hats on. Did you see them? They've got their uniforms on. And the camera is panning along them, see? And I'm sitting there watching my TV set, drinking a beer. I'm being a real American, see? Yeah, I'm sitting there watching. And the camera's going along. It's picking up these guys. And they look so distinguished. Gray hair. They, they look kind of solid. Chairman of the board, look. And that camera's going along, see. And all of a sudden, it picked up one guy that nobody said anything about. And, and the announcer, who was Jerry Coleman, sat down, and uh, there's uh, Marius Russo. And now let's get out to the other big stars. And Marius Russo is just standing there, see. All of a sudden, it came back to me. And I got mad. It's terrible to get mad watching a guy on a TV screen you don't even know. Marius Russo. I'm looking at Marius Russo. Now, do, do any, have any of you ever heard of him? Yeah, he's a pitcher. But he's not like Joe DiMaggio. Everybody yells about him, you know. My dad hated Marius Russo with such a passion. He made Ahab look like one of the Bobsy twins. Oh, yeah, my father used to get mad. He had these fantastic words that he would apply to Marius Russo. <laughs> and I'm a kid, see, and I didn't, you know, ball players were just sort of big, misty characters. But my father personalized them. And every time the Yankees would come to town, he would save up for months. That took that long, yeah. He would save up for months, see, and weeks before he'd say, we're going to see the Yankees. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, we would set out for Comiskey Park. 
on the south side of Chicago. And right next to Comiskey Park was the stockyards. Now, I don't know whether you've ever been next to a stockyard in a good, hot July afternoon. But you know the curious thing about it, you could hardly tell the difference between the stockyards and Comiskey Park. <laughs> yeah, there was a very definite similarity, see. In, 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 in the stockyards, there were a bunch of sheep walking around going, ah. They'd walk around. He did a lot of stuff there, see. <laughs> they did it all the time, apparently. And, and, and there were a bunch of cows and a bunch of horses walking around. And out of Comiskey Park, there guys like my dad, very sheep-like in their own way. And we'd all sit out there. It's Sunday. The Yankees are in. It's a quiet day. 40,000 people are there. The biggest crowd of the year. In fact, up to that point, the White Sox had drawn over 1,200 people <laughs> in 64 games. <laughs> oh, yeah, and now it's the Yankees, and so everybody is saved up, and they've all come out. And down there on the field, you see these guys walking around taking batting practice. Now, most of you are from the East. I'm sure you don't recognize the fantastic hate at the... I, I, guess, it's, I guess it's a kind of fear that the great underbody, the great belly of the Americas, the Midwest, feels for the Yankees, New York, the Times, Rockefeller Center. I mean, all that stuff. Have you ever, have you ever watched those Midwesterners on their two weeks walking around Sixth Avenue there? These guys with the flowered print shirts, you know? They've all got the brownie hanging on the front, you know, and they're walking like this. Looking up, see, and they, 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 they say one thing. Sure, a great place to visit. Sure as hell, wouldn't want to live here. Wouldn't want to live here. They would give everything they've got to live here. They all secretly know it, see. And so every couple of weeks, in comes this representative of real life. Remember, the Yankees represent real life. Have you noticed that almost all television shows come from New York? They don't have a show that says, and now, here it is, The Tonight Show, brought to you every night from Griffith, Indiana. <laughs> you laugh, why? Because nothing happens in Griffith, you know, there's no, no show. It's, it's New York. And so every two or three weeks, in would come the Yankees. And the old man, like every guy out there, if you think Willie Loman was tragic, Listen, the entire is Willie Loman squared. I mean, how would you like to live in a state? How, but how many of you uh, know, even know, what Indiana has on its license plate? Do you know what their slogan is this year? Nobody knows. You never see Indiana license plates, do you? It's very hard to get out of Indiana. Are you aware that the turnpike just goes right over the state? There's no way to get out of the damn thing. Oh, yeah, once in a while on a quiet Saturday night, you can see the, 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 the Indiana residents walking around in the cantaloupe fields. And they're looking up at the turnpike. See, the turnpike is elevated in Indiana. You can't even climb on it, see? And it's like that great turnpike in the sky. And they see these headlights going east and west. And you can hear the citizens down there mooing. 
Oh, yeah, you know, sometimes in Indiana, and I, I say this as an Indiana, and sometimes one of the greatest times to go to Indiana is in the mating season. <laughs> yes, which comes in early spring. And, and the, the, if you go there at that time, if you lie quietly in the bushes, they will come right up to you. And they will eat out of your hand. They're very, yes, they're very intelligent. You can, you can almost get them to stand up and beg and things. And out there in the darkness, every two weeks, the Yankees come. Well, now, most of you are used to seeing the Yankees in white uniforms. That's the home uniform. Have you ever seen them in their grays? When the Yankees were greedy at the top, they looked like the veritable personification of evil. Yeah, they're gray uniforms, no stripes, nothing. And they're very slender, dark uniforms. And there's no jazziness. They have no little red bills. The lower the team goes, the jazzier the uniforms become. <laughs> yeah, this poor little team from, from Los Angeles, they got halos and red bills and little beaks all over, birds and stuff. You know? Yeah, it's like radio stations. The lower down the scale a radio station goes, the bigger its station break becomes. The friendly spot on your dial where coal meets iron. Where the Rotary Club got its birth, the place where music reigns supreme. W-K-L-N-U-C-K, Allentown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> this is a little tiny station above the hardware store. And so, out there, you, we were only used to seeing the Yankees in gray uniforms. Gray uniforms. And they walk out there so quietly out on that green grass and the smell of the stockyards drifting in. And the Yankees are 47 games ahead of the White Sox. <laughs> now, the White Sox are way down in eighth place, 47 games out of first. And the only hope we've got is that next week we may beat the Brownies one out of four. <laughs> the Browns are coming in, you know. And so the White Sox are out there taking batting practice. That is when they really would shine. They had a special batting practice pitcher who could hit the bats. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it was it was great to see these guys. We had we had there was a third baseman named Bozberger who went three months without a hit, and Berger used to line him out over that left field wall in batting practice. The crowd would say, "Poor, he's getting his eye." And Berger had this thing, and then out would come the Yankees. And they take batting practice. And I don't know what they used to do, why they did it. It's a subtle kind of psychological warfare. The Yankees are taking batting practice. I'm a little kid, see. And I'm sitting out there. And we're way out in left field. Way up there in Peanut Gallery. My old man is sitting next to me. And he says, now watch. They're taking batting practice. It's the Yankees. There's Joe DiMaggio. DiMaggio is leaning back in the cage. Just saying a word, you know, just looking around. Yo, man, there he is. Look at you, can see him breathing. It's amazing. He was a human being, you know. He breathed and everything else. He says, look over there, see? There's Tommy Henrich. And Henrich is walking around. He says, look, look who's up at the plate. It's King Kong Keller. Uh, can you imagine playing a ball team that's got a guy named King Kong on it? Yeah, King Kong Keller, and he stands up there, he's got giant trunks of legs, you know, like big trees. Yeah, he had a huge neck, he had three necks, actually. <laughs> the joint where his little head was, see? Yeah, and Keller would stand up there, and he'd just take those easy cuts, you know, and he'd just golf them. 
And you know, during batting practice, the Yankees must have used psychological warfare. They would only top the ball. The ball would roll around, you know, they'd bump, hit little ones. The old man says, oh, they're off today. <laughs> they're off today. He says, look, Joe's missed three straight. And Jamajo with that big swing, you know, he just swoon. He'd look around, he'd spit. You know, I, I like the way they present DiMaggio today as being this distinguished gentleman. You know, he's a man of such fantastic... You think he should be in the U.N. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the real DiMaggio is a fighting, spitting ball player. I can remember him out in center field. And the old man, we're back in left field, see, and we're looking right down at him. That's the way we watched the ball game. We always saw the backs of outfielders. And DiMaggio's walking around out there. And he spit all the time. He walks a little bit. He looks. And the old man is fighting DiMaggio. You hear this current, this mumbling undercurrent of, of obscenity. He comes back. He sees that big number five walking. And then there was one man. Now, I don't know why. It was the way he walked. You know, the other day, one of the... One of the uh, Sports announcers I know, an old friend of mine, said to me, he says, you know, I can't figure out how the fans can get a guy's personality so accurately, even though they don't get within 6,000 miles of him. He says, for example, the fan's idea of Roger Maris is right. <laughs> he really is that way, you know? Yeah. And, and the fans' idea of Bobby Richardson, he's kind of a little do-gooder type, you know. He's, he's, little, he's kind of basically a, a camp scout leader type. He really is. You know, Richardson keeps sitting in the dugout saying, well, fellas, it isn't how you play the game. It's whether you win or not. <laughs> Which, by the way, is, is really the epitome of and There was one ball player, though, who was comparatively unknown. My father hated with a fantastic passion. Whenever he would show up in batting practice, he'd start yelling. Have you ever heard, have you ever been embarrassed by your dad? I mean, yeah, my father never did anything in, in normal life except when he went to the ball game. And this ball player would walk out, and he's just got a high number, you know. Even uh, nondescript ball players have high numbers on the back, you know, like 49. You know, 53. You notice Babe Ruth's got three. Oh, yeah. Gehrig is four. DiMaggio is five. You can imagine Ruth with number 264. Oh, no. See, so here's this ball player with something like number 43. And the old man sees him. He's got his little binoculars he got in the Cracker Jack box. You know? Yeah, he carried it for years. And he says, he's, there he is. He'd stand up on his seat. Boo! 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 Chicken yellow! Where he got the idea Marius Russo was yellow, I don't know. Yeah, Marius Russo bugged him. And now the boo! Yellow! Boo! And, and it's quiet out there, you see. Nothing is happening. It's batting practice. And you'd hear it echoing all around the stand, see? And the old man is up on his seat. He has his leather lungs. Yellow! Ooh! And you see Russo looking around, you know? <laughs> the old man is scoring, see? Yeah, Russo's looking around. 
torn by two things. I was torn on one hand, being embarrassed that the old man is yelled and everybody's looking at him, and I was also secretly proud of it. He was taking the Yankees out. And then there was another little thing. I secretly wanted Marius Russo to come up there and give him hell. You know, can you imagine going to school the next week saying my old man had a fist fight with Marius Russo? <laughs> Joe DiMaggio hit him in the eye, you know. <laughs> you know, then... And so the old man's like, Boyo! And I remember this day. I'm watching TV today. And everything is warm and nice, you know. And they're all very, it's, it's, there's a kind of nostalgia about these ball players. They're all lined up along first base and the flags are flying. And then, the, then, they, then they took a pan. Did you see that dramatic moment? They took a pan and they picked up all the flags that the Yankees have won. The world pennant. They were flying all out at the Yankee Stadium today. There must have been a thousand of them. And I remember the only flag that flew out at the White Sox was the, was the tornado warning. <laughs> yeah, once in a while they put that little flag up there that means after the third inning, hide under your seat. We never want any flags. You know, they didn't, even their American flags were cheesy and the sun would come through them. You know, they'd flap out there. And so here this camera went along, see, and it took this scene, and I'm sitting there, I'm watching this, and year after year, they had them all there, 1934, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 72, 85, you know, I said, oh, damn, Yankees. It all came up there, see, and then they quickly panned down, did you see how dramatically they did it? Here, sitting on the dugout steps, was Mickey Mantle. He's just watching us. He's got that crew cut. He's also got three necks. You know, Mantle's looking out over there. And they shoot those flags again. But then I go back as they show these ball players, And I think, yeah, I'll never forget that time. It's one of these doubleheaders. The White Sox are leading. Incredibly. They are leading the Yankees in the eighth inning. It's, you know, everybody's sitting on the edge of their seats. And there is the beloved pitchers pitching. His name is Ted Lyons. Did you ever hear of Ted Lyons? He's a beloved pitcher at the out, of, out at the White Sox Park, at Comiskey Park. You mentioned Ted Lyons. It's like mentioning DiMaggio here. Because Ted, once Ted Lyons won three straight ball games. Oh, yeah, they don't forget it out there, you know. Oh, yeah, and so here is Ted Lyons, see? He is holding the Yankees scoreless. It's the eighth inning. The score is one to nothing. How the White Sox got that run across, I can't even describe. A typical White Sox rally. Bose Berger got hit on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah, he had a double-jointed shoulder, see? He could get on base that way, you know? He'd go like that in the ball. It's a strike right over the plate. He gets hit on the shoulder. And he's backing away. So Berger's now on first. The next runner-up, what happened? He lays down a butt. The pitcher falls over, feeling it, and now the White Sox have got a big rally going. They're two men on. 
Luke Epling has fouled off 26 consecutive pitches. Finally, the pitcher gives up and throws him one underhand. Epling drops it back at first base, and now the bases are loaded. The pitcher's walking around out there. This is a typical White Sox run. The crowd is going insane. Out of their skull, and up comes Mike Tresh, who's Tom Tresh's dad. Mike Tresh once went three seasons without a hit. <laughs> Boy, what guts. What a holler guy, you know. He stayed in the league by having great lungs. Yeah, for hours after a year. Come on, put her here, baby. Put her here, baby. Come on, let, her, let him hit it, baby. And everybody in the stands, oh, God, no. Let him hit it. With Pat Seary playing the outfield. Pat Seary made my grandmother look like Ty Cobb. <laughs> Your typical white feeling, you're kind of fat, you know, and he's going to catch him over his shoulder, you know. He liked to play around in batting practice, throwing him behind, you know. And so that was the kind of team. Now they've got the bases loaded. Up comes Zeke Fenora. Banana nose Zeke. Who, by the way, was a fantastic hitter for a White Sox. So Zeke gets up to the plate. He scratches around, spits, and the crowd is sitting on the edge of its seat. Let's go, Zeke. And out there are the Yankees. DiMaggio walking around. They're playing these guys. You know, most, most fans in New York think of the other ball teams as kind of the chorus. They're the reason you go to see the Yankees. You've got to have them play somebody, you know. <laughs> yeah, nobody ever thinks of them as being human beings. See? And so here's DiMaggio out in center field looking in. And you can see that second baseman, Joe Gordon, Flash Gordon. He's walking back and forth. Boy, he was different than Bobby Richardson. He was kind of obscene just to watch. He's digging in down there. Over here at third base is Red Rolf. He's backing up a little bit. His glove is swinging. And out there on the mound is this pitcher. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the manager of the Yankees comes out of the dugout. The old man is sitting on the edge of his seat. It's Joe McCarthy. He walks out. McCarthy always looked like a banker. He comes walking out. He's got this little hat on. You know, he was born 70 years old. <laughs> no. He walks out. He says something to the pitcher. Pitcher nods. He goes off. And now comes wandering out of the bullpen, the old man's enemy. It's yellow belly Russo. <laughs> yeah, Russo walks out, you know. He takes a couple of wind-up pitches. And he walks in a run. He walks in a run. It is now White Sox one, Yankees nothing. It's going into the ninth inning. The old man's out of his skull. You know, he's, oh, yeah, Billy Russo! Kill Russo! Kill him! That first batter gets up to bat for the Yankees. He drops a bunt down the first baseline. Incidentally, a bunt down the first baseline with Banana Nose Zeke playing first. <laughs> One of the great comedy acts of all time. <laughs> he lays that bunt down. You know, you can see the Yankees were serious. Now, they saw a little threat going on, see? So somebody lays a bunt down. He comes charging, and he's laying there flat and crack. He used to try to hit the ball to stop it. You know? <laughs> he's trying to hit it, you know, and it's rolling around. The guy walks over to first. He stands out there. He's up first. Up comes Marius Russo. The pitcher, 
And the old man says, take him out! Take him out! He's a pincher. He's a pincher and he's a reliever. He gets up the bat. And I see all this today watching this crummy television show. This nice man, you know, Russo now looks so distinguished. He looks so official now. But Russo's wearing that evil gray uniform. And he gets up to bat. Well, now, all of you know how pitchers bat, traditionally. Except this is the Yankees. The first pitch, he takes this easy swing. The old man says, get up to him, Kev! He's yellow! All over the stadium. The old man's voice is reverberating. You know, it bounces off the upper deck. It echoes down into the dugout, in past the stadium parking lot, and back again. He figures he's got him. Russo looks back up. Taps the plate. All of a sudden, Russo is not batting like a pitcher. He's digging in. Ted Lyons looks down, gets his side, winds up, and pitches. It was his famous fast curveball over the inside corner. There was a brief instant, a blur. And the next thing we knew, that ball is rising up and up. Up and up, it lands seven seats to our right. We were in the upper deck and left. Marius Russo hit a home run that almost decapitated the old man. He belted it probably the only home run he ever hit in his life. And that runner is scoring. It's now two to one White Sox. And so help me, I swear, Ted Lyons looked out of that dugout. They yanked him. He's walking back into the dugout. He looks back out to left field. And I swear, he was looking for the guy that started it all. <laughs> yeah, he looked right up there. The old man is sitting <laughs> It is not written in the record books, but I am here as a witness to tell you that my old man lost a ball game against the New York Yankees. And from that time on, I always see this, this gray, these gray creatures. That's the power structure. The Yankees, yeah. Have you noticed that even now that the Yankees are down in the second division, there's something evil about them? You know, it's like, it's like a dead snake. <laughs> you ever seen a stuffed hooded cobra? He's dead, but you can't get close to him. You just look at him. And so seeing all these Yankees walking around out there today, I said to myself, well, I wonder if the people watching know what evil these men, what devastation these men have caused to come into the lives of otherwise innocent people. For example, Rizzuto. I happen to know Rizzuto today. Did you see Rizzuto today go sliding into second base? I saw Phil Rizzuto once against the White Sox pitcher slide around three bases without stopping. <laughs> and the old man is screaming. And so I feel today, have you noticed that the White Sox are slowly, or the, the White Sox and the Yankees and all these teams are slowly coming together. And in this day, one minute, thank you. <laughs> She's very excited. <laughs> and in this day and age, it is, it is kind of hip to be against the power structure. And I think that's one of the reasons why the New York Mets have made it. They somehow represent the rebels. <laughs> you mean, they're, they're the guys in the wheat fields. 
who are in the mountains ready to dislodge the power structure. But always there is a Mickey Mantle. We'll be back in just five minutes. Hey, honey, wait, what, what was going on down there? And now back to Gene Shepard. Now, don't all of you just... I mean, don't you feel a little silly? You see what's, you see what's happening? You see what's happening? We have ignited the fire. Oh, yes, we have brought the secret, basic rottenness out of all of you. And you have brought it out into the open, and it began to rise. Listen carefully, oh, listening audience out there. You will hear the sound of unmitigated human venom. Listen carefully. Listen to that. Listen to that. Listen to that. Now you know why we're in trouble. Yes. Oh, unmitigated human venom. I want to tell you about that. You know, here two weeks ago at the limelight, I had a scary moment. You, you have them, you know. And after the show, I go off, you know, I go off the stand here. There's a lot of people here. And there's this gommy-looking guy. Just gommy. You know the, you know the old, you know the Jersey word, gommy? Well, you know what is it, gommy? Well, I'll tell you, if you don't know, it's a great, very handy word. The word gommy describes that look. You know the kind of look that Nelson Eddy has? You know that, that Dick Ferran look? You know, that kind of, that bland pablum look with the wavy hair? <laughs> you know, kind of a basic uh, bowling team captain quality. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of it in Jersey. It's basically a Jersey phenomenon, you know? Oh, yeah, the gommy quality. See, and I'm walking out, and this guy says, Hey, chef. And I turns, and here's this gommy-looking guy. And I says, How are you? And he says, uh, I'm an army pilot. I says, oh? He says, yeah. He said, fly one of them liaison planes. I says, you fly an L liaison? An L-14 or an L-15? He says, yeah. And I couldn't help it. All of a sudden, I'm seeing the enemy, see? Yeah. I say to him, are you still dropping flower sacks out of those things? He says, yeah, how did you know? That got me look. I says, how did I know? And I walked off stage, see, and I still got the lump on the back of my neck. I turned around, I said, you see, that's where I got one of those things. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, you, know, that you never expect to meet the army. And, and the enemy and all of it wrapped up in the one. And I come back and I says to him, I says, tell me about it. When you fly out over those troops in, in maneuvers and you're dropping flower sacks on them, do you aim? He says, you bet. <laughs> well, let me tell you a story, you know. I'm out of the Army, see. You want to hear an Army story? These are the kind of things you never hear about. Yes. In Now, quit hissing. You're going to hear it. <laughs> now, shut up. not going to do you any good. I'm in the Army, see, and, and I, you continually see stories and movies and plays about the Army. 
But I can tell you, I have never seen anything that even remotely resembles the real army. It's always the way a writer sees the army. Or it's the way a writer who was in the army wished that the army was when he was in it. You know, like dramatic. It never is. And so he writes it when he gets out. You know, you got the fascistic second lieutenant and the young little corporal who's a, who's a young Jewish Brooklyn who's going to get killed, who says beautiful things and writes poems and he's going to have a little grocery store on Flatbush Avenue when he gets back. You know he's going to get killed. And, 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 and this lieutenant played by Van Johnson comes in and they all hate him in the first place. He's the new lieutenant, you know. I never saw any of that in the army. Not one time. But here's a typical army scene, a real one. I'm in a signal corps. Well, I don't know what you think the signal corps does. <laughs> well, it does do that, too. <laughs> a lot of that, that's true. You know, whenever I see these, these, you know, these, these war novels that says a roistering, fist-fighting, rollicking story of G.I.s in war. An exciting, rollicking story of love and hate. You know, <laughs> I feel like it was, you know, I was in the wrong war and everything. I mean, a rollicking story of love and hate and swinging and always there's Marlon Brando meeting Geraldine Page or something like that, you know, in the movies. Here's the way it really was, or at least one moment. We are on a forced march. We are marching through Ozarks. You, ever, you know what the Ozarks are like? Well, when the Ozarks in the heat of Janu July and August, you can't comprehend it. I'm telling you, it makes the Negev Desert seem kind of vaguely like Maine. Yeah, because, there's, because you see, the, the Ozarks are sneaky. They don't look rotten. You know, they don't look hot. They look green. But as you march along, it's getting hotter and hotter. We have been on the road now since 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm carrying 67 pounds of full field equipment on my back. And this is a trenching tool sticking me here in the rib. <laughs> yeah, it keeps hitting you. See, that damn little entrenching tool. By the way, speaking of entrenching tools, you know what the entrenching tool is? When you go in, they give you either a pick or a shovel, one or the other. And you're supposed to be with another guy. If you got a shovel, you get together with a pick guy. And the two of you together make this hole where you're going to get blown up in. <laughs> See? Well, well my, my, my particular platoon, we had all gone through this Fort Sheridan the same time, and all of us got picks. There wasn't a shovel in the whole company, you know? We would talk about mythical shovels. You know? Yeah, once in a while, in the far distance, we would see a company way up on the hill that's got shovels. And guys watching through the binoculars, they got shovels. Somebody said, let's go up and steal one. And they would be watching us through their glasses saying, they got picks. <laughs> See, I wish I had one of them picks. And that was the way the Army was. See, and shelter halves. <laughs> I'll tell you about the shelter half. So here I am, see, 67 pounds of stuff. I got the M1, and it's slung over the shoulder, and it's banging, hitting, you know. Over here, you've got your gas mask is hitting, and over here, you've got this can of chlorine. That's your water. <laughs> yeah, they give you this swamp water with chlorine pills in it, see, and it's riding on you. You've got the, the whole stuff, and we're walking along. And by, by the end of about nine hours of marching, 
Everything blends into one. You don't even know you're walking or marching. Just this heavy thing, see? You just keep going. Like that. And all it's for a while, a jeep goes by. Oh! That's got the captain in it. And he comes, pick him up, you guys, let's go. Wow, past he goes. In a jeep, see? We're just going. And then after a while, you don't even go that fast. You sort of just move like this. You just move and this thing's going up and down. It's hopping back and forth. And the sweat is pouring down a tin hat. Boy, and when the sun lays on that hat for about 17 straight hours, it comes in your ears. It rolls down. I can hear it squishing in my shoes. And there's mud taped. And next to me is Gasser. Well, Gasser is six feet seven. And by now, he's five feet eight. <laughs> yeah, Gasser is next to me, see, and he's got this pack. And, and I'll never forget this terrible scene. Right ahead of me is this poor guy, Goldberg, who all the time I knew him in the Army. You know, have you ever known guys in the office who just can't do anything? I mean, who really aren't totally non-talented. Now, <laughs> no, I mean, can't he, now they can't even pick this up. You know, I mean, the truly non-talented are guys who can't do anything. They take a glass of water and it goes down their feet. Well, poor old Goldberg is ahead of me, and Goldberg weighs about, I would say, 220 pounds. He's five feet two. And, he, and you can see him wobbling, see? He's wobbling along. And his pack is, is on his back sideways. Now, packing, now, now, you have never seen a movie where the guys are putting together the pack that they carry. This is a really difficult... You know, it took me a year in the Army to learn how to do that. Just to roll the shelter half so it wasn't this thick. Seven feet long, you know. Oh, yeah, you've got to pack your whole life into this thing, see? So up ahead of me is Goldberg. I see him. Next to me is Cassie. We have put 17 miles behind us in the Ozarks. And his captain keeps going past. And every time he'd go past, his jeep would kick dirt on us. And he'd holler, pick him up, let's go! You guys ain't never going to win the war like that. Wow! And next to me, Gasser is swearing. He's not no longer swearing. You know the swearing when you're angry and there's affectionate swearing? Then there is just deep, primal, instinctive swearing. <laughs> now that's a very special kind. You don't hear it much in real life. And here's Gasser going along. He's just going, and I hear this. You see, it's a steady roll. It's just beating against my ears. It's going in my helmet now and again. It's like the sound of the surf. It's like the distant sound of an ancient sea. It's man's eternal soul raining against indignity. And I hear this, and he is using only one word. He is playing all variations on it. He's like some maniacal, fantastic musician of obscenity. And he's playing on this great organ of obscenity. He's playing, and it's going to... And once in a while, I would say, I would say to Gasser, you know, it was beginning to get me. And I would turn on and say, knock it off. And all it would do, there'd be a little wave that would go up. And ahead of me, I see poor old Goldberg. 
this, this is a scene I'll always remember from the, from the war, is Goldberg's pack is now crooked. And it's sort of hanging down, and his rope is all screwed up, and his shelter half is trailing down and hitting his feet. And a shoe is hanging down. See, there's a shoe hanging down by one long shoelace, and it keeps bouncing against his behind, see. This is the soldier that's going to go and get Hitler, you know. And I keep thinking of the Africa Corps, you know, and I keep thinking. And here he is, he's going along in his helmet, his boxing lock, and his gun has got dirt all over it, you know. And you can just see the sweat is coming after him, and he keeps grabbing stuff. Now, how many times have you come out of a supermarket and the stuff is going, you're grabbing it, you know, and you get, you get sort of a basic equilibrium like this, see? And you keep hitting the milk with your legs, see? One, one misstep and the whole thing goes. Just don't touch me. I'm going sideways. You know? Well, here is Goldberg walking along like this, see? And I see the, the helmet and all the stuff and I can see. Well, and then it began. A tent peg. Now, in, in that, do you know that in that pack, there are eight tent pegs. There is one shelter half. There is one entrenchment knife, one pair of shoes, three cans of sea rations, four powerhouse candy bars, two dirty books. Oh, there's a whole mess of stuff, see? There's, there's, there's stuff like uh, can't, oh, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a cup. There's little things like shaving equipment. Oh, that's all packed up. See, and I'm going along. See, I, I don't see anything at this point. I'm just going, gasping, swearing. The Jeep keeps going by. The sun is hitting down. And a tent peg falls out. Well, I see it there, see. I go along and I pick up the tent peg. I say, Goldberg, your tent peg. <laughs> and now Goldberg starts to swear. <laughs> see, his pack is now leaking. In addition to falling apart, it's leaking, see? And he says, I says, look, I'm not going to carry your tent pegs. By now, there's three of them, you know, and I'm picking them up. A shoe comes down. We go, somebody in the back of the platoon, I was, shoe here, got a shoe here. What, a, what an army. See, Goldberg is swearing up there, sweat. You could just see he's just staggering. And then all of a sudden, the lieutenant goes past in his jeep. The captain is next to me. Take ten! Take ten! Ten-minute break! Well, now, when you're on a full field march, let me tell you how the ten-minute break works. I'll tell you. You, you, don't, you don't lie down or anything, see, because this pack took you two hours to put together. So here's what you do. You just go like this. You stagger back. You got a ten-minute break, see. You sit down. Like that, see. And it's now propped over your head. You lean forward. You just sit there. You take your helmet. You lift it off. You lay it down. You sweat in it. You sit. Just like that. Nobody says a damn word. You just sit. It's been 17 miles. Dirt, crud, sweat. Somebody says, after about three minutes, Anybody got a cigarette? And you hear, eh. They're too tired for even that. Nothing. And then all of a sudden, you're up again. You start. 
The 10 minutes is over in 8 milliseconds. It's fantastic time passage. And now we are sitting down, and I've got these tent pegs. So I say to Goldberg, Goldberg, I got your tent pegs. And here's his pack. It's all hanging down. You know, you know he can't put his, the tent pegs in his pack. I said, I got your tent pegs. But somebody way over in the back of the platoon, Edwards, says, is this your shoe, Goldberg? He's got a shoe. Somebody hollers, is this your knife, Goldberg? They're holding stuff up, you know. Somebody holds up something I can't describe in, in uh, mixed company. Is this yours, Goldberg? Goldberg's sitting. He's just absolutely blank eyes. Gasher says he's not going to do nothing. Well, then Edwards gets up and says, well, let's fix his pack. So here's this guy. He's completely given up. He's just sitting there, see? So Edwards got a hold of the back of the pack, and he's starting to tighten it, see? And he says, Shepard, grab the back. So here I'm working. We're trying to get this pack animal ready to go again, see? He's sitting like a scene. I'll tell you. He's just sitting like this, see? I said, come on now, now, come on, let's go, let's go. And the whistles are blowing. I says, come on, let's go, Goldberg. And three guys get him, and he starts moving. <laughs> Somebody says, no, we're going that way, Goldberg, come on. <laughs> this is a real scene. So now Goldberg is now marching again in line. We have put 20 miles behind us now. There is just the edge of twilight. The purple clouds are beginning to be seen in the distance. We are about to hit the bivouac area in another five miles. Oh, that last five miles. We're on a 25-mile hike. Ooh, ooh, boy, with 67 pounds of crud. And Goldberg starts to shed again. <laughs> we have him hooked up, you know. We've got ropes and stuff. Somebody stuck another rope and a strap over. He's walking sideways now. <laughs> He starts to shed, and now, I'll never forget the scene, his blanket starts to unroll. <laughs> well, see, the blanket, now, for those of you who have ever seen the pack, the blanket is put around the pack in a horseshoe form, and it's rolled tight, see? It's like that, and it's got ropes around it. Well, it was fantastic. I am seeing that blanket. It's going up like that, see? It's sticking straight up in the air now, and it's beginning to... Have you ever seen slow-motion photography in Walt Disney movies? of flowers blooming. His, his, here's this thing. It's opening up behind him. He's got this long Batman cape hanging out. And the guys behind him are walking on his blanket. And now they're getting bugged at him, see? At first they were with him. Now they're getting bugged, you know? His cape is hanging. You see this thing? The next, another shoe bounces down. I kick it off. I said, somebody hollers, Pick up your shoe, Goldberg. And he goes, go, 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 go. Then somebody else, I owe you, Goldberg. On we go. And the lieutenant goes by. It's one of those sad moments. The lieutenant goes by, and he stops the jeep. And he sees Goldberg. <laughs> he sees Goldberg, and he runs up to Goldberg. See, and he's running along Goldberg like this. This, this A typical ROTC second lieutenant, you know? He's got that... Like, like he's made out of silly putty, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's a certain gr great look that ROTC second lieutenants have got. They've just gotten out of the University of Connecticut, you know. 
Oh, yes, and they always have this draw, you know. They've, they've seen plenty of Errol Flynn movies, and they know how the Army should be. You know, by God, we're going to have a good outfit here, fellows. You know, they walk around, and all oh, it's kind of ad agency. He comes, up to, he comes up to Goldberg, and he says, he's, come on, fellow. He's, come on, fellow. That's the worst thing to say to a GI that's falling apart. Come on, fellow. <laughs> you know, you can't get the old team spirit going there, you know. He's, come on, fellow. Come on. Come on, help. Come on. Let's, let's go, fellow. And Goldberg's going like this. He's just walking. And the lieutenant's running along, and he says, the captain's going to be along. What are they going to think of Company K? You should have known what this crowd thought of Company K, you know. Hell, what a captain, you know. They're just going along, a Company K, you know. Goldberg is falling apart, and then all of a sudden, it started to come. Have you, you know that moment in the, in, the, in the supermarket when there's been little rips and tears, and, and suddenly the avalanche begins? You know, the Pop-Tarts fly out. And, you know, and all the stuff, and keys and everything, and it's going down, and then, bah! And there you are, knee-deep in beer and stuff. Goldberg's pack is just disintegrating. And the stuff is hitting me on the legs, it's bouncing, I got ten pegs and the whole business, and the lieutenant is running along now, picking it up. <laughs> what a great moment, he's fielding for Goldberg, see? He says, come on, soldier, come on, fella, gee whiz. Come on. They never taught him this in ROTC, you know. Come on, fella. And Goldberg's just going. He is hearing nothing. Not a damn thing. So the only thing the lieutenant can think to do, he, he says, 10 minute break. 10 minute break. He's got his arm full of stuff. Goldberg goes down. Yeah. He sits. And the lieutenant says, all right, now, now come on, fella. He's, come on, good, good fella there. <laughs> good fella. See, he knows how to handle French poodles. <laughs> He's, come on, fella, it's going to be all right now. Just let me help you here. And he starts to put the stuff together. And then Goldberg said it. I'll never forget this. The company is all sitting there in the dust, silently. And the lieutenant is working over Goldberg. He's got eight, ten pegs now in his hands. You know, he says, now, look, it's very easy. Just pull the rope tight. He's being very reasonable. And Goldberg says, I ain't going to carry it no more. <laughs> That's what he just, I ain't going to carry it no more. He just sat there. And Gasser stopped swearing. You know, there was that moment, you know, Gasser says something looks. The entire company is no longer tired. Absolutely, it just disappeared. There is a fantastic drama going on. Goldberg says, I ain't going to carry it no more. The lieutenant gets up. Well, if, you, if you're not going to carry it, how are you going to put up a tent when we get there? Goldberg says, I ain't going to carry it. I don't want no tent. <laughs> Very difficult to get through, you know. <laughs> Lieutenant says, where are you going to sleep? So I'll sleep on a rock. <laughs> He's been asleep for 10 miles, you know. <laughs> a 
and he's just sitting there, you know, and, and he didn't, he didn't make any mad noises. He just, he, he just had it, you know. He says, I'm, I'm not going to carry it. So there we sit. Now back of us was Company J. Ahead of us is Company O. Ahead of them is 6,000 companies that way, 4,000 companies that way. The entire Second Army is on its way to the maneuver ground. And Company K is just sitting on it, you know what. And you start to hear whistles going all up and down, see. And you, hear, you see the dust going. And Company P starts to march towards us. The lieutenant says, all right, let's go. On your feet. Oh, face forward, hearts. Goldberg gets up. Just goes. He's not nothing. He's just walking. The stuff is falling off. I'll tell you, he's kicking his shoes. And the lieutenant is panicking. He's running around. And way in the distance, you see this jeep coming, see? It's the captain and the major. <laughs> you know, she's, he's one of And now the next moment, I'll, I'll, I'll always remember this fantastic picture, this second lieutenant. He's carrying an entire field pack in his arms. <laughs> he's marching along. He's got blankets, tent pegs. He's got a pick sticking up, you know. Here's Goldberg. Goldberg walking next to him, and the captain goes driving by in the jeep. He goes, wow! He drives back. He says, what's going on, Lieutenant? It's nothing. I just carry my equipment. <laughs> and the, the captain says, get in here. Whose pack is that? The lieutenant's standing there. He says, uh, this man, sir. He says, get in here, soldier. Come on, get in the back. And Goldberg turns around. Here's this jeep, see? And the ropes are hanging down. All he's carrying is, is his canteen. Because that's full of Pepsi-Cola. I later found out, see? So he's standing there by this jeep, and he looks there. And he says, okay. And he sits down. Next to him is the second lieutenant. He's got the shoes and the tent pegs. Next to, up here in the front is the captain, and here's the sergeant driver. Off they go. They're gone. Goldberg has got a ride. <laughs> Goldberg is riding. The lieutenant is carrying his pack. And Company K is slogging along. You know? All of a sudden, our first sergeant turns and he says, All right. We're going to be the best damn company that marches in. Right? Pull in your gut. Let's go. You guys know what real soldiering is now, right? And everybody saw real soldiering. Goldberg was the only real soldier in the bunch. And wherever he is tonight, let's give Goldberg a big hand. He's probably made it. <laughs> All right, Eddie's here. What radio station is this? Hit and where are we here? The best damn town in the whole country, right? You are cordially invited to George and Martha's for an evening of fun and games. I know what we do. How about a little round of get the guests? Both draw the child man. I don't. I don't like these games. Anyway, Elizabeth Taylor. Richard Burton. You be 
the new motion picture. A gas attack. Have you ever had a gas attack after you've matched 20? By the looks of some of your faces, I can see that you're having a gas attack. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, you know what that involves? Here's what that involves. A gas attack means this. He hollers, gas! That means we are being attacked by gas. Now, theoretically, you rip open this, you have your gas mask in a big case here, you rip it open, you take it out, you put your chin in, over the back of the head, around the back, you blow out the stuff, and there you are. You snap the edges, put your head ready for gas. That's theoretically. It's great how things work in theory, see? So he always, gas! And you hear this concerted muffled swearing. But it was all directed at the sergeant, see? And it was one word, it was telling him what to do. And he says, shut up, gas! Let's go! On goes the thing. I grab mine and I rip it open. And like everybody else in my company, I had hidden in my gas compartment here. We had never had a gas attack. I had 16 Butterfinger bars. <laughs> and everybody in our company, you know, had, war is so unreal to soldiers. If you think it's real, it, really, if you think it's unreal to civilians, you ought to, you ought to see how unreal it is to soldiers. The first thing that everybody in our company did when we got our gas masks, we put them on. And somebody says, I can't breathe. <laughs> Well, you can't. You put one of these idiot things on, you just sweat and they stink and oh, it's terrible. They cloud up inside and you go. <sighs> so what have we done? Every last one of us had taken out, we, there's a thing you unscrew and you take the filler out. And we flushed all the filters down the john. So our entire company had gas masks you could breathe through. <laughs> Well, here we are, you know, with these things. And all the candy bars and the apples and all the stuff. The sergeant is yelling. Have you ever heard a guy yell through a gas mask? It bounces up. And everybody in the company, it's wild. You know, you can say all kinds of things because he can't see who it is now. Yeah, you see this whole company of monsters. You see, they all look exactly like, and they say terrible things. Oh, yeah, always. And so here we are, we're now walking along with our gas mask, breathing great, see? <laughs> no filter. We're going along, see, we're all saying, gee, you know, was, <laughs> we fixed their wagon, you know? But all of a sudden, oh, gee, when I think of it now, I get nervous. Right over my head, I hear this, and right over our head goes this airplane. It is screaming. He's about 19 feet over the ground. He's just whistling over our head. And the sergeant hollers, And he hits the dirt. And this guy is laying over this column of men, this fine white cloud. He is gassing us. <laughs> he is laying down a cloud of the most fantastic. Have you ever read in the papers? Have you ever read about tear gas? Let me tell you about tear gas. I am lying in the ditch with my gas mask on. Next to me is Gasser, the company wise guy. 
who, by the way, had brought back the information on what to do about the filters in your gas mask. <laughs> he was our training officer, gas, you see. Here we're lying, to, and this stuff is floating down. I, you know, I, I thought it was smoke from the airplane or something. I'm laying all of a sudden, whoo! <laughs> this is fantastic! It goes down the throat. There's about 6,000 little red hot ice picks. <laughs> My eyes, <laughs> And I can see the whole company is rising. <laughs> They're laying in the bushes, you know. You can see them going up and down. And all of a sudden, you start hearing this, oh. I don't know whether you have ever heaved in a gas mask. <laughs> oh, talk about exciting moments. <laughs> you see it coming up to your eyes. <laughs> you see the world a different way then, friends. <laughs> and we're lying there in a just fantastic moment. I'm sick. And I see this head looking around. It is the first sergeant. He's got these clean, bright lenses, you know. And you can just see him looking around, and he sees this whole company. He was looking for it, see. He sees us all. And you see guys are starting to let the edges of the gas mask open, you know. Ah, this stuff pours out. <laughs> and you hear him like this, keep the masks on, keep the masks on. Here comes another attack. Oh, I'm telling you, this guy kept going back and forth over the column, and he's laying his stuff down. And, and Gasser is just flat out. There's a puddle that's six feet around around Gasser, see? And this little L-4 plane goes off into the distance, and you can hear the pilot cackling. <laughs> And immediately, the, the, this guy gets up. The first side, he goes, all right, on your feet, let's go. We get up. Our candy bars in our hands. Yeah, you know, you don't let go of a powerhouse candy bar that easy. Oh, yeah, you know, it's a funny thing what you'll hang on to in moments of distress. I've got this candy bar. Gas is holding a baby Ruth bar. And he stands there and looks at us for a minute. The first side, he says, all right, you guys. You learned a lesson, right? It's funny <laughs> how we fight basic lessons. What we learned, really, was to keep our powerhouse candy bars in our back pocket. <laughs> and to kill any L-4 pilot you ever meet. <laughs> there was one guy that I know that went down to the supply room and says, give me one of them new filters for the, for the gas mask. And so, ten minutes later, we are on our way. Oh, boy, did I feel right. My eyes are burning. I can feel this, you know, this, this sensation of, of, of burning in the throat. I feel rotten, sick. And Gasser, he stops swearing. He's just moving along. Back of me, I Edwards. Dimitri Metropolis. We had a guy named Metropolis. We all called him Dimitri. He was exactly the opposite of the great conductor. He had a trick he could do when music was playing on jukeboxes. It has to do with uh, extreme control of bodily functions. Well, I, I'll not even tell you what it was. It was a great trick. I'd love to see that act on the Ed Sullivan show. You could do it in seven keys, even. And so I'm walking along there saying, 
We're now about two miles from home base. And off in the distance, we can see the flags flying. You can see it coming up. It's now about 8 o'clock. The temperature's 106 degrees. And you can hear the mosquitoes. Millions of them are coming down from the Ozark Hills to, to do what they do. <laughs> yeah, they do it, too. And they're sweeping down, millions of them. We're going along. And suddenly, way off in the distance, this is when it happened. I hear another plane coming. I hear this yelling. You hear these sergeants all along the line hollering, Hit the dirt! Plane attack! Here comes a plane! And we... This little, same little, idiotic, ridiculous airplane comes whistling down, right down the middle of the... Right down the middle of the car. Our sergeant hollers, Hit the dirt! Air attack! Bombing rage! Strafing rage! And this guy is laying what looks like little eggs. They're dropping in the column. I hit the dirt. I'm laying there. He goes past. I'm safe. See? Then I hear way down in the distance, I hear the cry come out, Bivouac! Bivouac! You know what that means? Dig in. That means dig in. And so Shepard looks around. He's a good GI, see? He looks around. He says, all right. Well, I build this hole, see? I'm going to dig a hole. Now, when you dig a foxhole, a foxhole should be dug about six feet deep, believe it or not. It should be no less than three feet. It should be six. And so old Shepard, he's going to try to recoup his day. I'm going to show him. I'm bucking for PFC. You know, so I start picking with my little pick. Well, the ground of, of Missouri is made almost totally of small pieces of angry rock that are held together by other smaller rocks. And that is held together by a thick, by a very thick mucus of Elmer's glue <laughs> that's vaguely dirt-colored. And so I'm chopping away there and sweat. Oh, it's terrible. I'm cutting. I, I, I can hardly wait to get in this hole because the day is over. I'm chopping. It's getting darker. It's really getting to be night now. Now I'm up to my waist with my little pick. And about 30 feet away, I can hear Gasser chopping away. And off in the darkness, I hear Edwards. Our little company is digging in from attack. Now I'm up here, you know. I've got my little hole here, see? And I smooth it out. Now, when you hear about foxholes, you don't really hear about the pride you take in them. It's your little house, see? So I sit down in my little foxhole with my head, see, like that, and I start making a little seat. I make a seat, see, so I sit on it now. So now I take my pack out, you know, and I take some stuff and I sit it around. I've got my little pad now. A six-foot hole in the ground, it's taken me an hour to dig. I feel great. I've got my hat, I put it up on the top, and I sit down in there. Well, <laughs> Not much. I'm watching the worms, you know, look out at me here, you know. It's home, though. Boy, my mother'd be proud of me if she could see me now. I'm sitting there when all of a sudden, here's when it happens. A head appears over my hole and looks down in. He says, hey, soldier, 
That your hole? Yeah. He said, Al, he's the colonel. Our regimental colonel is taking my foxhole. Are you aware that this is an army tradition? He just requisitions what he wants. He says, all right, Al, dig another hole. My little pad, you know? Here's this guy. He's got a big green hat with a big eagles on it, you know, and he's got this jazzy pair of combat fatigues with eagles sewn on them. Oh, man, you know, he's really sharp. He says, go ahead, soldier, dig your soul. Let's go. Get on a ball. Get on a double. Move. Yes, yes, I take my pick. Well, now it happened. This is the moment of supreme realization that Sherman was right. <laughs> Boom. I've got my little pick, and all around me I can see the heads of the rest of Company K. These little, you can see the helmets. So I'm picking my way up over the side of a hill, when all of a sudden, over the trees, came screaming out of the darkness a tiny green airplane. He screamed right over Company K's area, right over here. Ah! And the sergeant hollers, hit your hole, pick up the hole. I start running up the side of a hill. I get about halfway up when all of a sudden, carump. I got five pounds of Betty Crocker. I am not kidding you. That guy hit me. I couldn't believe such accuracy. He hit me with a five-pound bag of Betty Crocker cake flour. That's what they use to simulate bombings, you know, and I got a direct hit. It knocked me flat. This white stuff flies all up in the air, and there I'm laying in it. The sergeant looks out of his hole, and it's getting dark. I crawl up the side of the hill. I dig a hole. About three feet, I'm covered with white flour. I sit in my little pad. And way off in the distance, the colonel is probably already in dreamland. In my hole, I should have been in. The next morning, we form up. We're all standing for forming. You know, forming up in the morning. Got my pack on. And there they're all out there on all sides of me in their green fatigues. I'm wearing white fatigues. <laughs> it was then that I learned a supreme lesson of human behavior. Standing up on the back of a jeep is our company commander, captain, and next to him is a colonel. The colonel gets up and says, Men, last night we learned an invaluable lesson. One of you among here did not have a hole dug and suffered a direct hit. Had we been in warfare, that man would not be with us today. We know who that man is, and I hope all of you learn a lesson. I'm standing there. The company's looking at me. I am a dead man. <laughs> and you know, that colonel, I had dug such a beautiful hole that that colonel's fatigues were not even creased. I could see it. And so we got back into formation and we marched. Next to me, Gasser says, that'll teach you. 
I said, what do you mean that'll teach me? He said, that'll teach you. I said, what do you mean? I dug a hole, gasser. He said, a pig's ear. You dug a hole, you got hit with a, with a, with a flower. You made the whole company look rotten. I turned around. I says, Edwards, I dug a hole. Did you hear that, Edwards? He said, oh, God, knock it off. You dug a hole. Nobody in the company believed at all. And I realized at that moment that might makes right. And that if a colonel requisitions your hole, you give it to him. And if you get hit on the back of the head with a, with a bottle of, of gas or a bag of flour, it doesn't make any difference whether you were right or wrong. Oh, by the way, speaking of that, ironically enough, two years later, I'm out of the Army. And believe it or not, I get a telephone call from an agency. They call me up. They say, Shepard, you got kind of a nice, dumb, Midwestern look. I said, yeah. They <laughs> said, well, how would you like to do a commercial? I says, for who? I says, well, it's a housewife's product. I says, what is it? The guy says, well, it's Betty Crocker's cake flour. <laughs> he says, have you ever had any experience with it? I says, well, yes. I've had experience with it. And so I go up to audition for this cake flour commercial. And all these official... Announcer types are there, you know, Bill Shipley, Rex Marshall. I mean, you know, the guys that always, you know, have this great look, the crinklies around the eyes, you know, that kind, and they always have that look. You know that kind of look that Derwood Kirby has? You know that kind of look like you could give everything to these guys and they'd give it back to you with 6%? You know, it's, it's that look of the Allstate commercial. You know that Allstate commercial? The one that says... You're safe when you're in the hands of all states. Those two big hands, and there's that little square house in the middle of it. Isn't that great to be insured when you get blown up? <laughs> yeah, you know, I always think of that commercial. When I, when I see this, I, I think of that commercial. Have you seen that great one? Where the guy, you see these feet walking along? And it's, it's the feet of a policeman. You see these feet. You see that great commercial? And that music is going, it's sort of Montavani type music, you know? It's, it's movie music. It's going, da, da, cha, chi, chi, kind of romantic, happy music. You see these feet. And then you see a hubcap spinning. And then you see weeds. And you see what looks like a broken piece of fender. And then you see glass. Then it goes a little further and you see a puff of smoke coming out of the weeds. Then you hear a thin, high scream somewhere and then you see this guy standing you know in that last scene he's talking to the officer and his shirt's ripped open he's like that you can see his pants are all torn and there's blood coming out of his ear but he's grinning and the voice says yes he's safe he's in the hands of all state somehow it was more fun to get wrapped up if you're with all state and so that's the kind of announcer that was there, see? And they're all taking this Betty Crocker, this Betty Crocker flower commercial, and they give me the copy. Well, the copy says, look with a friendly look into the camera. 
It says, remember, you are dealing with housewives, and they like friendly people. <laughs> I keep thinking of Mrs. Bruner. <laughs> I always think of her as the typical housewife who always read True Detective. And, and some copies of True Detective would come covered with real blood. You know, it says, rape murder shows full story inside, slays six with axe. That was my typical housewife. And so it says, look into the camera. And then it says, speak first softly, and then, as you warm into it, give the feeling of excitement as though you're ad-libbing. And it started out, it says, women, housewives, ladies, <laughs> cake bakers, have you tried the friendly flower? Have you tried Betty Crocker? You know old Betty comes around the studio here all the time. And the guy says, wait a minute, Shepard, wait a minute. Let's start from the top. The trouble with you, Shepard, is that I don't think you've had any experience with flour. <laughs> and you know, there's an old acting axiom. How many of you know the old acting axiom that says, use your difficulty? Use your problem. In other words, if, if you're angry, use that anger in a scene, and it comes out real. So I said to myself, yeah. I have had experience with Betty Crocker cake flour, all right, Jack. You really want me to say it? You know, I'm saying this to myself all the while. I'm going, you know. So he says, all right, okay, let's go. Roll them, all right, let's go. Ready? All right, camera, start at the top, Shepard. I said, ladies, uh, would you like to really try the friendly cake flour? A cake flour gals that really says it that goes all the way. He comes rushing out of the control. He says, stop. You got it. The commercial is yours. He says, you are the first guy that we've hit that believes in cake flour. <laughs> so help me, you know. He says, you're the first guy that believes in Betty Crocker cake flour. I says, that's right. And my back and the neck is still hurting, see. And, you know, even to this day, when I get into the sh I turn the water on especially hard, little pieces of dough come out. <laughs> it's still ground into my head, you know. It doesn't come out easy after it's rained on you for years, you know. So the first night I go on the air with Betty Crocker, close to close, you might have seen me and not known it. It came out of the Midwest. The first night on this big show, the camera comes in, the cue is given, and I look out and I say, ladies, would you like to try a cake flour that really says it? Would you like to try a cake flour that not only makes a cake, but a cake flour that builds an entire world? A cake flour that goes all the way. <laughs> ladies, try Betty Crocker. I can tell you, this makes a real batter. <laughs> But instantly, there's a phone call that comes all the way from Checkerboard Square. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to visit Checkerboard Square? That's a true American shrine. This is where Tom Nix lived. This is where, what is his name? Bob Richards lives. Checkerboard Square, and he call, and I get a call from Checkerboard Square. They say, fella, Betty wants to meet you. <laughs> Did you know there was a real Betty Crocker? 
Yeah, there was. <laughs> there was a real Betty Crocker. And, and, and the guy says, Betty wants to meet you. And two weeks later, this lady gets off a plane in Cincinnati. And I had dinner with her. Betty Crocker. It's like having dinner with Montgomery Ward. You know? You know? You're out there. You, can you imagine having dinner with Montgomery Ward, Howard Johnson, and Sears Roebuck? You know, here's Betty Crocker. And she says, she says, she says, you know, you don't look like the kind of man who cooks. But you know, you really feel on those commercials as though you really feel Betty Crocker. And there's a little lump on the back of the head, and I say, baby, I feel Betty Crocker every night. Oh, now, stop it. We'll be back next week at the same time. Now, aren't you ashamed of yourselves?